Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. This morning's scripture reading is from John 17. I think it's verses 1 through 8. Is that right? Right. Cool. <laughs> don't want to don't read the wrong ones. Uh, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the, ou- the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom uh, you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Um, this is a, a transition in the in the text. Uh, chapters uh, 13 through 16 literally were this discourse of Jesus kind of teaching his disciples in the upper room and helping them to understand and know um, all that he wants to teach them before he comes to the end of the um, the end of his life. Here, um, there's he you see in his disciples immense sadness. You see this uh, this the sadness as they are understanding and grieving the fact that Jesus is teaching him. He keeps saying these things of, I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave, I'm leaving, and where I'm going. And there's this all kinds of conversation on this. Well, this is a this is a transition. He, he ends 16 with, with telling him, like, don't worry, you will have trouble and trials in this world, but I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. And, and now he assumes... Uh, the role that he is to play, that we see him playing from here on in, in history. Um, he, he knows that their full understanding will come when the Holy Spirit comes and brings that to light, helps them remember what he has taught and also teaches them other things. We've talked about that in the last weeks, but now he, he literally a, assumes a role and he comes to, to praying for his disciples, which actually uh, Hebrews 7.25 says it this way. It says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, speaking of Jesus, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8.34 says something very similar. He is always praying for us. And he is, he is thank you. So he is, he is praying for them. Now, we see all over scripture, Jesus praying. We see him, and it's usually said in very small amounts. He, he left to go pray. He, he went to go pray. Or we see short 
prayers. But, but many people know when we go to the, say, well, the Lord's Prayer, we go to, to Matthew 6, and that's the Lord's Prayer. No, that's not a prayer that Jesus prayed. That's a prayer that he's teaching his disciples to pray. Because Jesus doesn't need to ask for forgiveness of his sins, for he was sinless. And so he teaches his disciples how to pray, but this is the only prayer that we have that is extended, long, like intense, full of information. It's the only one that we have of Jesus praying with the Father. And this is kind of in the transition time from the upper room. Most likely they're walking the dark streets of Jerusalem, the downtown headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is probably approaching around 11 to midnight on Friday is, is where we're at in this in this time, and Jesus knows that he's supposed to hap- this is supposed to happen. But here we see Jesus praying. We know that Jesus prayed often. He, he continued went out to pray. In fact, even some of his last words on the cross were prayers. Jesus was a, was a man that continually prayed, continually focused on prayer. This should, this should in itself compel all of us to think twice about how important prayer is to our lives. How often do we find ourselves spending time in prayer? How important is it to be in prayer for us? And we see prayers all over, many amazing prayers written in Scripture. We see that, we see, we see that Paul is praying for the believers in Ephesians, in Ephesus. We see um, millions of wonderful prayers. We see a, a prayer of Moses. We see a prayer of, of Abraham. We see all kinds of prayers happening throughout Scripture. Really, it's interesting. If you think about it, um, we can see what is important to someone based on their prayer life. If, you, if you've journaled, if any of you ever journal and you look back at your journal, you can see both what you believe about prayer and what was important to you in prayer because you can see the outworkings of what's happening in front of you. Uh, a few years ago, 2017, we, it's been known, Idaho's snowpocalypse year, um, my, my kids were, were younger. My, my middle daughter, I think it was Olivia. We couldn't remember for sure if it was her or some or Ava, but one of them was praying, and we love the snow. So I want to just tell you right now, if you're, like, going to complain about snow, don't do it to me because you're not going to hear anything. I'm not going to hear it. Like, I love the snow. If it's going to be cold, there might as well be white stuff on the ground. That's my rule. But um, so we were like, let's pray for snow. And I love it. My, my daughter, um, one of them, either Olivia or Ava, we could not remember. We were trying to talk about a dinner last night. And, and one of them sits down and she's like, well, we're just going to pray for more snow. Let's just pray for more snow. And, and she sits down. And I mean, like she passionately like thanks God in her own little like five-year-old words or, you know, eight, seven-year-old words, whichever one it is, right? She's passionately praying for this stuff. And she's like, God, I want you to bring 16 inches of snow. And, and I'm like, oh, honey, like, Baby, like, that was really specific. She's like, yeah, I want 16 inches of snow. I'm like, do you even know what 16 inches is? No, but I want 16 inches of snow. And I kid you not, the accumulation the next day was 16 inches. Like, the Lord heard that prayer. That did amazing things for my children in their prayer life, like amazing things. Although they might be a little sad this year because they keep praying and it's not. Anyways, that's not, I don't think that's how it works. But in that prayer, there was no convincing my kids that that was not important to them. In fact, every single one of us knew that it was incredibly important to my children that they had 16 inches of snow. You can see what's important to us by what we pray for. You can see how powerful we believe prayer is by what we ask or seek in our prayer. And, and I, if you're like me, your prayer life sometimes is fairly feeble. And you feel like sometimes you need to justify why you're asking for something or you... You feel like you need to 
to make what you're asking seem more holy or more, more important to God's agenda so that he will answer these prayers. Well, we get something profound, something beautiful, something that God has preserved for us through history. We get to see God the Son in man form praying to God the Father. And, and I'll admit, I've read this many times, and I just kind of glossed through it, like, oh, this is important, this is great. But, but it should cause us to pause. It's like, wait, hold on a second. So often in Scripture, we see that Jesus is praying, even when you think about him calling, walking on the waters, like he's praying for six seven, eight hours. And we have zero information on what he was praying for. But here we get Jesus praying um, on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he is taken to the cross. And so there are many things we can take from this prayer. Really, I hope to pose, really, I'm just going to hope to pose a number of questions for you out of this text. Questions is all I'm going to give you this week that will will come um, from this prayer for us to ponder, hopefully, not just this week, but for the rest of our lives. But first, I want to ask you a very basic and simple question that, that I think needs to be answered. Do you believe in the power of prayer? See, because if we're going to, if we're going to, if we're going to look at what Jesus is doing in prayer, we have to see that prayer for Jesus wasn't just something you do because that's what you're told to do. And you hope you're lobbing something up that maybe that God would hear at some point. Do you believe in the power of prayer? And, and let me ask this question differently because, and then we'll dig into what I think, there's many things that Jesus shows us in this that is just really wonderful. But maybe look at your current circumstances. And I, I know, I know, I, like looking out, I know many of your stories. And you're dealing with some hard, hard things. Like things that, that, that aren't fair, things that don't seem right, and things that honestly like, are being thrust upon you for some of you. Do, do you still believe in the power of prayer? Do you believe that God can and does listen to us, hear us, and work in our prayers? Like that I think is, a, is the fundamental question because let's just, let's just call it what it is. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He believes in the power of prayer because he goes to the Father in prayer. In fact, I'm glad he believes in the power of prayer because his role in Hebrews 7 that we see or him intercessing on our behalf as we see in Romans and and him taking that spot or being our advocate as 1 John says is ultimately Jesus in the throne room right now praying for every one of his children, advocating for us, saying that's not who they are. I've clothed them in righteousness. So he believes in the power of prayer. I hope you do as well. And maybe if you do journal, maybe you don't journal, maybe just Maybe you're like, ah, oh, journaling is just not manly enough. That's okay, that's fine. Whatever you want to say there. Just write down what you're praying every now and then for. And I, I promise you, you'll see two things. One is you'll, you'll see really quickly how unintentionally selfish we can be in our own prayer life. But also, when you look back in the rearview mirror, as I've done many a time, you'll see just how frequently God was listening and answering those prayers that you were completely unaware of. Because most of us, we pray in a moment when it's hard, and then life moves on, and we just kind of forget it and move on. And we rewrite the narrative as, oh, well, I did this, and it worked. And not, we not once saying, well, the Lord did this. So do you believe in the power of prayer? That is um, something that Jesus obviously did. And that's what we, we, we step into. We step into, in, in verse 17, it, it, your subtitles might say the high priestly prayer, the, the prayer of Jesus. This is a long prayer with a lot of interesting things. And if you think about it, it's in the, it's in the culmination of Jesus still trying to 
encourage his disciples. So I can't help but think that this is, Jesus has taught them all that he can and wants to and all that he believes that they can handle this moment, knowing that the Holy Spirit will fill in the gaps after the resurrection. But I can't help but think that he's still in this moment, even though he is intimately connected to the Father in his prayer, Father, Son happens over and over again in this, in this prayer. I think he's still showing, he's, he's, he's teaching and showing the disciples where their power is going to come from, where, where their encouragement is going to come from. He's, he's still leading his disciples all the way to the moment where he is about to face the most horrific thing in the world, and he's spending all of his time encouraging the men around him instead of focusing on himself. The, the, the prayer is broken up into three sections. It's kind of like the prayer for Jesus and then the prayer for the disciples and then the prayer for those that are not yet there. Um, I think that's maybe us trying to put it into this situation. First things first, Jesus does pray for himself, but let me be really clear, it is not a selfish prayer. It's a very much a prayer that, that we should probably pray pretty often when we think about these first ones, although many of us would struggle to say things like, uh, glorify me, like, <laughs> glory you. I don't think that's one thing that we'll want to pray, but Jesus does pray for us to be glorified in him from the Father. And so here is this prayer. Jesus, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, so it's, a, it's an immediate transition out of him talking about the tribulation and overcoming the world and, and your sorrow turning to joy and, and, and all the, the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, when he had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Now, if you can remember in John, over and over and over again, Jesus keeps saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Jesus was beautifully, perfectly in line with the timeline of God's sovereign will. He was walking the whole way through it. And Jesus says, my hour has, yet not, has not yet come. And now he says, for the hour has come. And again, Jesus is not speaking in like, oh, this is 60 minutes. Please don't think of that. This is a time period. This is the time that John, the gospel John, has spent an entire time talking about the, the glorification of Jesus at the cross. That's the hour he's speaking of. He, he assumes a common Jewish posture, which would have usually included like a, a, arms out, but we, doesn't, we don't have that. But lifting his eyes up, it's not to mean that God is somewhere in the sky, but it's a... It's a um, it's a, an act that was viewed as directing one's full attention to God. We see in Scripture, in fact, in Luke 18, where the tax collector won't even look up. He doesn't believe. He's like, I'm a sinner, and he beats his chest. And so here, Jesus looks up to the Father and says, my full attention to you, and I'm going to pray. And I, I, again, this is all conjecture, because we don't see what Peter or any of the guys around him do. But like, I, I mean, they had seen Jesus probably pray many of times. They'd seen him go off and pray. They'd seen him... They'd seen him pray around them. They've seen him blessing and praying, like the little short prayers that we have throughout Scripture. But like in this moment, all of a sudden, now they're like, they're let into the journal of Jesus, like the prayer journal of Jesus, and he's praying. I, I mean, I, I like him to think if I was there, it's like, whoa, pay attention. Like something big is happening. Like he has taught us how to pray. And if you look really at the prayer in Matthew 6, he, he kind of follows that other than the whole trespasses stuff. He does. Hallowed be your name. He get glory to God. Like, like he follows through all of those things. But here he... He starts to, to talk about this hour, this appointed time, which in the Gospel of John was this death, his exaltation, for his glorification. And precisely because the hour has come for the Son to be glorified, he prays that glorification might take place. And this is, this is really interesting. The first thing he does, since you, have, since you have given him, since you've given the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, isn't this interesting? 
the disciples, the individual in this situation, the context of disciples, and then us today, we're actually a gift to Jesus from the Father. I'd never thinking of it that way. Most of us, we think of Jesus as the gift for us, which he is very much so, but, but he's talking here literally that the Father has given us to the Son. And this is where he's saying, he says, he's given us and you've given me authority in, in, to, over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom have given him. So he's saying, glorify you. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Jesus' desire and burden was the glory of God. We see that he did healings to the glory of God. Everything he said and did, he said to the glory of God. This was, this was all of Jesus' ministry, and it's all over in the scriptures. God's glory is, a, is the radiance of his holiness. It's like displaying God's worth and value to all. And that was the entirety of Jesus' ministry, was to give glory to him. So then Jesus says right here, he says, glorify me as I glorify you, which is such a weird thing. Like, I don't think many of us would get up and go like, God, glorify me today. Like, that's not something we would probably utter. But Jesus can, and he goes on to talk about why he can. And again, I think it's important when we look at this prayer, he, he uses the term father and son, and it's very intimate. It's not just a, a distant deity. It's a, very, it's a very beautiful kind of like together connection. But this word glory is used five times in these verses. One scholar says it this way. In, in John 17, 5, he refers to the pre-incarnate glory with the Father, the glory that he laid aside when he came to the earth to be born to serve, to suffer, and to die. In John 17, 4, he reported to the Father that his life and ministry on earth had glorified him because he had finished the work that the Father gave him to do. And then in 17, 1 and 5, our Lord asked that his pre-incarnate glory would be given to him again so that the Son might glorify the Father in his return to heaven. John has done this since the prologue. Like, we cannot separate the Father and the Son. It's, 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 it's impossible to do so. Here we see Jesus saying, give me your glory. Like, glorify me as I glorify you. Now, every good Jewish student would go, whoa, 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 hold on a second here. Isaiah 42.8 and Isaiah 48 very clearly have God, Yahweh, the, the God, saying, I will not share my glory with anyone. So for Jesus to ask this, and God the Father and God the Son share their glory. And they must both be God. This is, this is ridiculous for him to ask for if he isn't God. Like, this is a, like he would have been <laughs> stoned to death in this moment on the spot by any good Jewish student in that day for that very thing. This was blasphemy to the, to the highest extent. How could we share in his glory? Because Jesus is God. And John has not hidden that. He's not said that that wasn't his goal. He's been very clear from the very beginning of his writing that this is the purpose, is to show who that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he is the way to God and salvation. And so we know that this is the case. In fact, uh, one scholar says, says it this way when speaking about God's glory. He says, the cross displayed God's glory like no other event in history, revealing his righteousness, justice, and holiness in requiring the precious blood of his son, a lamb, unblemished, unblemished and spotless. First Peter 1.19 says that. As a propitiation for his holy wrath against sin, Romans 3.25, at the same time, it dramatically de demonstrates his grace, mercy, and love in the sending of his only son to die for the sins of the utterly undeserving. What God has accomplished in Jesus Christ display both the justice and love of God because God's holiness is vindicated in the cross 
while at the same time his love is displayed in the willing sacrifice of his son. So it's fitting that Jesus' prayer would start with, God, glorify me as I glorify you. And it's fitting that he would say these things, saying, look, look, I, I've done, and he goes into it, he says, I've, I've completed the work that you have asked me to do. Now, that's not entirely the work. He's, he's going to the cross. The hour's at hand. This is, he's done everything to the hour, and ultimately, he's going to go through the cross. At this point, Jesus has made his decision. This is where he's going. He's following through. He's, he knows where he's going. And so Jesus says, Lord, I want you to be glorified in everything I do. Now, how often do you and I, if this is, if this is it, important to Jesus, then shouldn't it be for us as, as well? How often do you ask for things from the Heavenly Father for your life in the sense that you hope that it will bring Him glory? It, most often we're asking questions like, God, take care of me in this way. Do this for me. Help me get this job. Help me stay healthy. All of these things are absolutely fine for us to go to our Heavenly Father. In fact, we're, we're told to go to our Heavenly Father with these things. But how often do we follow it up with but, but your will be done and you be glorified ultimately no matter what the outcome is. That's not a prayer of lacking faith like he's not going to do something. That's a reminder in me saying that, that I am not the one to get the glory. Most often our prayer lives are more about glorifying ourselves if we're really honest. God, show these people this. Let them see me do this. Let them see me how good I'm in these ways. Look at, look at this. It's, it's, it's our pride in our prayer life. And Jesus starts says, no, no, glorify your son as your son has brought you glory. And, and the reason why I can ask you to do that is because I know that ultimately, if I'm going to bring you glory, I will bring you more glory by going through the cross. And that ultimately, everything you do, even glorifying me, will still glorify you. When you are asking anything from God, are you seeking his glory in those things? Do you find yourself asking for the glory of God to be seen in everything you say and do. It is not wrong to go to God with the desires of our life. He is a father, a good father, that compares all earthly fathers as a snake, essentially. He's a good father. It's not wrong, but, but, but do you ever desire those things in a way that would bring him the most glory? Are you, are you willing to, to have that prayer answered when it's going to bring him the most glory and not ourselves the glory. So Jesus begins his prayer saying, glorify me. Glorify your son so that he may glorify you because why? Jesus knows that ultimately going to the cross in obedience is going to bring glory to God. He goes on in verses two, he says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is what it is. Now, he, he talks about eternal life, which is funny. I think when most of us think of eternal life, we think of life after death. You know, we think when we say, like, he, we like eternal life is that I live on forever. Like, I, it's, it's, it's there. And that is, a, that is a true understanding. But it's funny. Jesus doesn't leave that to question in his prayer. He doesn't say, he doesn't say just um, that they, you know, to give eternal life to all whom have, have given him and then move on. He goes, and this is eternal life. Oh, the answer's right here. What is the eternal life? that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He goes to a knowledge of God as eternal life. And, and this is really important. Eternal life is not something we earn, 
by character or conduct. It is a gift we receive by admitting we are sinners, repenting, and believing in Jesus Christ alone. That's what eternal life comes from. But it's not just this extension of like, I live on forever. It's actually a intimate relationship with God. It's a knowing God that comes through eternal life. This is what eternal life is. It's a knowing. And, and knowing is not about intellectual. It is not. It's not, it's not just like uh, this way. The Hebrew notion of knowing encompasses experience and intimacy. And for Christians, that means obedience to, look to and love for God. So to, to know, to know something wasn't just to, to know it in my head. Look, James talks about that. Even the demons know that Jesus is the Lord, but that doesn't do them any good. Right? Knowing is, is, to, is to, to, to understand, to, to make, it's an intimate relationship in, in with the Father. And that's what eternal life is, is an intimate relationship with God. Knowledge must include a commitment to Jesus Christ, God's Son. It must include that. So it's not, it's not just a, a little thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a big thing. To deny the Son is to deny any true knowledge of the Father. To know God is to be transformed and to be introduced to a life that could not otherwise be experienced. This is what eternal life is. It's, 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 it's a knowing God. He says it's not only just knowing God, it's, it's knowing the one and only true God. See, there are people, if we think of this just as, as knowledge, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of false religions even in this day that made knowledge the thing. If I can just be smart enough and, and do these things and argue it and, and, and handle the rhetoric and, and keep these things away and, and be the best at arguing, then I'm, I'm with God. No, it's not just knowledge. It's actually an intimate relationship. In fact, more often than not, the way the word no is used in scripture is going to make most people uncomfortable because it's not a, just a head knowledge thing. There's an intimacy there that cannot be separated. One begins and the other one, we don't know where the other one starts or ends. It's, it's, it's very close. The one true God, because God is the one true God, he has supremely revealed himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Knowledge of God cannot be divorced from Jesus Christ. That should be obvious to all of us. Like he has revealed himself. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So to, to be intimately connected to God must come through intimate connection with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, this is eternal life. This is eternal life. You want eternal life? That's it. It's to know God, the one true God, and to see you. He says that. He says, to know the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. This is what Jesus is praying for. He's saying, God, I, I, I've done your work. I've, you've given me authority to do these things. Let me be glorified as you are glorified. He goes on to say in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's not... He's not asking to leave the, the, the humanly form as his ascension. We're seeing, we see that Jesus can be glorified in different ways. If you look at the, the prayer with the, um, the transfiguration as we see it, like there's a, there's a difference in it. Jesus' body is very different in how he interacts with the disciples after resurrection. He's saying, no, I want to be established back to the glory that I ultimately had to lay aside to put on this flesh. He's saying, with this flesh, in this resurrected body, restore me back to the glory that I shared with you from the beginning, which, by the way, would be absolutely insane 
for anyone to say, because what Jesus is saying is before there was anything, I was there, which is the very thing that John proclaimed in the beginning. The word was with God, and the word became flesh. Why would John say that in, in 1.18? Because Jesus says it in his prayer. Restore me back. Bring me back to the glory that I had with you before the foundations of the world. Do you find, this is the second question I'll leave you with today, do you find yourself wrapped up in the knowledge of the one true God and his son? Is everything about knowing this God, not just intellectually, but practically in your day-to-day -day life? Do you, do you find yourself living with a desire to know God more, not just intellectually, but how it would play out as you walk with him by the Spirit's power in honesty and faith and, 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 and purity because of the righteousness that God has clothed us in, in Jesus Christ? Do you find yourself living a life that is wrapped up in knowing God the Father through Jesus Christ? Is your, is your prayer life enamored with the idea of knowing God more. See, I, I think it's, it's really interesting. If, if this one is true, I feel like the first one is easier. Because if I want to know God and his will and his purposes and what he wants to accomplish, it's easy for me to ask for him to get glory in everything I do or say. Jesus did. Jesus said, look, this is what I came to do. Eternal life, that which I have and that which I am the giver of <laughs> over all flesh. That's what they want, to know you and to know me. And then he goes on in verse 4. He says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, this is a fun one because what did he accomplish? Like, we know that ultimately on the cross he says it is finished. So he, he's not... He's not saying that he's fully finished the cross work, but he's accomplished those things. So what is, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that I have, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Jesus is not holding anything back. He spent his entire ministry talking about how he does nothing apart from what God has asked him to do. Like everything he is doing is not anything on his own accord. It's, it's that which God has asked of him to do. And so he says, I have finished your work. So how is he finished? By the healings that he has done, by the teachings, by his obedience to God, walking in step with God and doing all that he's asked. I have, I have finished the work that you have asked of me. Now, I don't know about you, but this is one of those questions for me. Like, can I even say I've finished the work he set out for me this last week? Or did I get distracted? Or did I get off a little? And did I, did I focus on other things? I think many of us get very distracted by the work that he has for us. Um, I think Jesus gives us this answer in verse 6. Now, most scholars would say that verse 6 on is where it transitions to him starting to pray for the disciples, and, and that is true, but, but I think the beginning of verse 6 is kind of the, the answer to verse 4 here. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. This is the work that he's accomplished. I have, I have manifested, I have displayed your name. Now, now, name is one of those things that in our situations, like, oh, this is their name. Like, who are you? This is my name. Name brings about so much more. It's like the totality or the inner character or the entire person. When you say in the name of someone, you're not just saying like so-and-so said it's okay. It's like you are literally a representation of that person. That's what this means here. And so when Jesus says, I have manifested the name, he's saying, I have displayed the character of God to all whom you have given me. 
I have finished the work. I have done what you've asked of. I've displayed you to everyone because he can say things like, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Even when, when John the Baptist questions, is this, are you really the Messiah because he's in prison and life isn't going the way he expects him to, to go, when the disciples of John the Baptist go to Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, yeah, I'm him. He says, hey, follow me. And he goes around and heals the blind and does all these things. And he says, tell him that the blind see, the lame walk, and the things. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, yes, I'm the Messiah. Only the Messiah does that. I have displayed it, not just in word, but in everyday life. You have seen the character of God. In me. And then verse 6 is, is kind of the importance that the disciples have now become a strategic link in God's work. Verse 6 goes on to say that they, um, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. This is, again, a perfect sense, so indicating a continual implication of their obedience. But we also know that, like, they did not do this perfectly. Right? But what is, what is it that they're, what have they kept? They, they believe that Jesus is of God. We've had Peter made these declarations. You are the son of God. Like we, they, they, have, they have kept your word um, is to be understood the, the, the gospel, the good news. So, so Jesus says, how have I accomplished your work? Well, I've accomplished your work by displaying your character, your glory to this world. And as I've glorified you, now glorify me. And, and we now, and as disciples years later, don't say glorify me. We just ask that his glory would be manifest through us. But Jesus will pray that that will bring glory to us in some weird way. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit way, a little bit later. One scholar says it this way. Christ has given his own eternal life, John 17, 2. But he's also given them the revelation of the Father's name, John 17, 6. The Old Testament Jew knew, that, knew his God as Jehovah, the great I am. Exodus 3:11 through 14. Jesus took this sacred name, I am, and made it meaningful to his disciples. He has seven I am statements through the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. And on and on. In other words, Jesus revealed the Father's gracious name by showing his disciples that he was everything that they needed. So as Jesus is praying to the Father, he, he says, I have finished. I have completed the work that you had for me, and I have manifested your character. I have displayed your character to the world. Well, this leads us to our next question. In our lives, do we believe that our life is manifesting the name of God? Are we displaying the character of God by the way we talk, by the way we go about our work, by the way we parent, by the way we live in our marriages by the way we we serve are we displaying are we displaying the character of god and then i guess the follow-up question to that is is do you believe that he has a work for you to do so that you can say i have finished the work i have completed the work that you've asked of me see i think that's that's one of the biggest misses for most of us as as, as followers of jesus today is that we get sidetracked into thinking that that we don't actually have a work to be done. We, we, we kind of think like, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, God wants us to do stuff, so I'll serve once in a while at one service, or I'll, I'll go to a gospel communion, and th th those are good things, and I'm not saying anything wrong, but like we think like that's the work. The work is just show up to church. 
That's the work. No, like, like our life is meant to be displaying the character of God. That means that whether you're at church or at work or at school or at home or by yourself, everything you say and do is meant to be displaying the character of God for his glory to the world. That is our, that is our purpose in life. In fact, one would argue Ephesians 2.10 says it this way, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not that we might, not that we hope to, but we should walk in them. If you, if you hear nothing else, please just hear this. As a follower of Jesus, he has a work for you. And it's not just going to show up in a vocation or in a ministry or it, it, your work is your life. I mean, he's got many things he asks of you to go and make disciples of all nations, to be salt and light to the world. He has many things he expects of us as his children to live and to do. So yeah, you have a work. And the Apostle Paul says that many of us want to hear it. Well done, good and faithful servant is what we want to hear. Well, a servant understands that they have a work to do. And it's not like, well, I'll do work once I'm married or once we get our kids past this stage or, you know what, I did a lot of work and now I'm retired so I can just enjoy it. No, no, your work is still active and still in play and still needed to be done until you are no longer breathing. God has a work for you. Oh, man, our, our Lord could say, I have accomplished the work that you have given me. He can say on the cross, it is finished. I want that for me. I want that for you. I want not a, 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 a nervousness as to whether or not we are doing enough, because that's not what I'm talking about. Like, yeah, be anxious. No, no, it's not at all. I want an excitement, a joy to live our lives in such a way that everything we take part in is a work to manifest, to display his character to the world around us. I want us to be excited to do that. Jesus begins this prayer. He hits on glory and asks to be restored to the glory is, and then he's going to move and transition to praying for the disciples and then ultimately praying for us um, and, and others. But he, but he talks about how he's, the, he's, he's completed the work, that, that he's asked to be glorified, but ultimately that everything he does would bring glory to the Father. He says, I've, I've, I've finished the work that you've set for me. I've accomplished that. And, and that work was to manifest or to, to display your character to the world. And then he says, go and do likewise. That started in 13 of this, of this book. Chapter 13 of the Discourse. Everything he does is just do just as I have done. So, so church, we have, we have a role. We have work to do. And it includes you. Whether you're in college, whether you got a job, and, and no one of us gets to do that work exactly the same. And that's the beauty of the gift of the Holy Spirit and how he works in us. But every single one of us doesn't get to limit God and say, well, this is all I'm going to do for you. He is going to work in our lives when we interact with a barista on a random day in the middle of work when we're busy and going somewhere. He's going to work in our lives when we're sitting alone, when we're, when we're with our kids, when we're, when we're married, when we're in college, when we're desperately trying to find our spouse, God is, is at work. So, so would you walk in them? Because he created them before the foundations of the earth for us to walk in. So would you walk in them? Would you, would you allow this day to be like, I can no longer be ignorant 
of the fact that everything I'm doing isn't a, okay, I do life here and then I'll just segue a little pie chart for God in this moment. Like, no, God is the entirety of the pie and everything has to fit in to a way that will bring him glory and will manifest, display his character to the world. Would you, would you just let me say this right now? None of us get to leave this room ignorantly, ignorant of the fact that he has work for us to do. Would you date in a way that would bring glory to him? Would you do schoolwork in a way that would bring glory to him? Would you be a child to your parent in a way that would bring glory to him? Would you live in community in a way that would bring glory to him? Would you stop thinking about life as if it is your little silo, your little home, meant for you to make the most out of life with the most money or the most enjoyment and recognize that everything you have, kids, spouse, no kids, no spouse, dogs, cats, money, everything you have is meant to be a display of God's character. And if you're like, man, I, I'm not there. I'm not there. Then would you spend some time in prayer this week asking for God to bring this true in your life? Why? Because there's power in prayer. And if you need prayer, the prayer room will be available for you to get prayer for this very thing. But I hope, I hope, I hope as you spend time praying this week, you would be seeing and asking the things that you can do in your life that will bring glory to God, that will make, that will ask him how, to con- how can I complete the work that you have for me, and ultimately, Lord, how can I manifest your name to whomever you have around me today? We're going to take communion in a second, so after the band, the band's going to come up here, I'll pray for us. We'll take communion together. You're welcome to go grab the elements and I'll lead us in a second here. But, but ultimately, um, if you are feeling like you're on the bench, so to say, with God because of your circumstances, many of you might wish or, or hope to do more and there's, there's things in your life that the Lord isn't, isn't allowing you to do in that. That's okay. Remain under those things. That's the, the trials that we experience. But, but a lot of us, I think we, we've just gotten lazy in this. We just felt like, oh, we can... We can do the bare minimum or whatever we have to do to hopefully secure something that has already been secured in Jesus Christ. So let's, let's, let's ask for God to manifest himself in us in greater ways. Let him, let him reveal himself to us in mighty ways. Let us become more aware of the knowledge of him, the intimate relationship that we have with him, and go from there. Again, there will be people in the prayer room for you um, if you would like to get prayer. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him 